This is an ABC podcast. Hi, welcome to The Bookshelf here on Radio National, your weekly podcast and broadcast of new fiction. I'm Kate Evans and today, Caleb Azuma Nelson's Open Water, Sunjeev Sahota's China Room and the Australian fiction that Booker Prize winning author Aravinda Diga especially admires. But we'll begin with a book released late last year, one that Cassie McCullough and I enjoyed immensely and one, I suspect, many of you are reading right now, Hannah Kent's Devotion. Australian writer Hannah Kent's first novel, Burial Rites, was the story of the last woman hanged in Iceland. Her second, The Good People, was set in Ireland. And here's Cassie to set up her latest, Devotion. Yes, so it's set in the 1830s. Initially, we're in Prussia. Uh, I've got to say, I didn't know too much about this part of German history or Prussian history. Uh, It's a religious community of old Lutherans living outside, really, of society. And and this is because of the King of Prussia's attempt to unify the Protestant churches. And so they've been pushed out, living as exiles, as a group. Yes, as sort of dissidents. Now, interestingly, our listeners in South Australia may well be more familiar with this history and this 19th century history because whole communities of old Lutherans migrated from that area of what's now Germany, from Prussia to South Australia and ended up in places like Handorf. And it's partly that local history, because Hannah Kent lives near there, that inspired this story. Mm-hmm. You can't think of two more contrasting environments, landscapes, as the ones that we find in this novel. Well, and then we see those landscapes through this character, Hannah, who is somebody who's very attuned to the landscape. And it does shift around a bit in time. So we know that we're getting a story. Very early on, we do get the smell of eucalyptus. So we know that there is a connection to Australia. And then we slip back into this world of Prussia and a town called Kay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was wondering what readers outside of Australia would make of this novel and, and I'd be curious, I'll be curious to see uh, its reception outside of Australia. But for us, it's very rich. So Kay, this village, it's really deep, dark northern Europe. There are forests, there's lush fields, there are fruit trees, pear trees, pigs. They live with lots of pigs and um, chooks. <laughs> sure they don't call them chooks. And this character, Hannah, is, well, I think a continuation of the themes that have been in Hannah Kent's previous books, the uh, burial rights, the, the, the woman at the centre of burial rights was the subject of accusations of witchcraft and the good people, which were set in Ireland, uh, it stepped into the fairy world and senses of other beings and forces being amongst us as we live. And that's the same in this book. Hannah hears the trees. She feels the earth and she can almost taste water that might be running under the ground. She's really not just in tune with nature. There's something extra there as well. Which means that she is out of tune with the rest of the community. And although you describe the sort of lush landscape, it's a very doer community. Mm. I mean, it's a very sort of hardline dissident Protestants and they're living a very grim life. I mean, at one point there's a reference to, to dancing and it's like, well, we don't believe in dancing here. We see that it's this sort of battened down, difficult world in which this tall, ungainly girl who's much more at home in the trees and that's where she sees the divine is in the outside world. Mm. But she doesn't have any friends. She's terribly lonely. And her parents are are quite stern and so in a way it's understandable that the lushness and beauty and intricacy of nature becomes far more 
luxurious than than the life that she's living, cleaning you know up after animals and and cooking. She is a twin. She has a brother called Matthias, and he. He's kind of lovely. He's a gentle presence and they the mother actually kind of separates them, in, intervenes in their closeness after a while because of a sense of propriety, propriety because, in fact, Hannah late at night would, you know, slip into Matthias's bed just to sleep next to him because they had this kinship of twins that only twins understand. So that's misread as something else. So, and there's another brother who is dead. Gottlob, who is older and had died in a just falling from a horse in a in a tragic accident, but his presence is also there quite literally for Matthias, who sees him sometimes or used to when he was younger. So this sense of pain and grief and the repression of sensuality and and a sort of interest as well in superstition, I guess, is all there. But then, strangers come to town. (laughs) This another family. And we sort of end up picking up an awful lot of things about the history of this part of the world, which I found really quite interesting. So this family that arrives, the the mother was a Vend, which is part of a sort of Slavic group who had unconventional beliefs, but there's just suspicion of her as an outsider, but the family is sort of welcomed in because they are also part of this dissident religious group. But there is a daughter of the family, Thea. Yeah, Dorothea or Thea or Thea. And I I guess I thought possibly she was albino. She's so fair, so startling with her white hair, her white eyelashes and white skin. She arrives and she fills this space that has been in Hannah's life and the two quickly become friends and out of the thirst, I think, for human contact, for someone who will listen to her, someone who will, will play with her and do fun stuff with her, uh, Hannah becomes so attached to Thea. And at first you wonder whether Thea feels the same way but you soon become convinced she does and they are fast friends. And I don't think it's a giveaway to say that they're not just friends, that this becomes a love story. Because from the very first pages where this is set up as a story of yearning and love and loss as well. And we're not quite sure from what perspective we're hearing this story from Hannah, because we're getting these glimpses of Australia because this community is given permission to pack up and go to Australia. And so we know that Hannah is there, um, but we get the sense that for some reason she's moved away from the community and well, she's observing Well, we know it. that she's observing from uh, the story is being told in the past and at one point uh, where a huge event is about to happen, she begins a chapter saying, as I arrive at it now the great hinge of my existence. So she's telling us from uh, a later date about the events that have led to where she is now. Um, It's hard to talk about. This book takes a massive risk halfway through, enormous in terms of storytelling, tradition, convention, uh, and we can't really talk about that. And I wish we could because... It's such an interesting piece of writing and, as you say, it's making a particular choice about the storytelling position and we simply cannot mm. say what it is. But I get, but some, something we haven't talked about, though, is the journey that mm. leads to this hinge, which is, as I said, this community is able to move, leave Prussia and head to South Australia. And I found those scenes on the ship where this the actual migration story fascinating because although I was familiar with lots of stories of people coming to Australia, the particularity of having come from Germany, just all the decisions you have to make about what you can take, packing everything into these um, handmade wooden boxes and being on this horrendous ship mm. where there's typhoid and it's dangerous and everybody's seasick. Provisions. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, you could the taste the water of, uh, going off. What were they? The They're fish. assaulted The barrel herrings. of herrings that goes off. Yeah, it's very detailed and um, it's a trial. It's 
a real terrifying, it's, it's, a, it's a life and death terrifying situation, like most of those journeys must have been. Well, and it's the 1830s, so that it was a particularly long journey. Mm, six months. Um, and it, it actually made me think of um, some of Sebastian Barry's writing about that trip from Ireland to various new worlds in what they called coffin ships. But as you say, then the story shifts in ways that we can't talk mm-hmm. about, but it affects the writing and it affects the perspective and it adds a sort of poetic type hints into the narrative. Let's talk about the writing, which we can uh, discuss freely and openly, Kate. Um, (laughs) She is a real stylist. There is no question this is the absolute strength. And sometimes we go on flights of fancy that you'll just indulge because they are exquisite and you're taken somewhere, like, for example, on that trip where a whale appears. Mm. And because Hannah is so in tune with the world of nature, she can feel and hear this whale bursting, you know, up from the depths of the ocean. And that's a transcendent piece of writing. There's so much writing in it that is. And then there's all these little tiny moments which are wonderful. And, you know, I could pick out anything, but one that stuck with me is talking about the character Anna Maria, who is Thea's mother or Thea's mother. And she... As you said, she's the wind and she's got some other knowledge as well, hard to pin down, but he's simply described as one who has trailed her fingers in stranger rivers. <laughs> she, there are lovely little descriptions like that that give you insights into the characters but then also into place. There's an awareness of Aboriginal people in the South Australian sections too and the dancing that echoed the feel of the earth which is particularly powerful given that she came from a community where dancing yeah. was forbidden. And the music of, of this country, this land, is completely different. And her father, Hannah's father, appreciates the land from a different perspective as a pragmatic farmer. He sees something entirely different, but that's described as beautifully. So lots of wonderful writing and if we go on, we're taking somewhere very interesting. This is, as I said, brave... I'm not sure that everyone will make the leap that's requested of them by the author, but I'll be interested to see. Love, longing, loss, and a really interesting perspective on dancing the landscape. Hannah Kent's Devotion is published by Picador. Now to an English novel that pulses with music, Open Water, by Caleb Azuma Nelson. He is a 26-year-old British Ghanaian writer and photographer, and this is a novel of art and love and race and identity, the story of two 20-somethings on the streets of London. He is a photographer, she's a dancer, and they meet in a pub in south-east London one night. The book was read for us by literary judge and RN colleague Daniel Browning, now presenter of The Art Show. And we asked him to introduce us to this couple. Well, it's an extraordinary tale of missteps, uh, this love story. And it's very complicated. It's complicated by very many factors. But they do come back together. But it's it's a novel that very slowly builds uh, to this kind of, I guess, you know, climax, this romantic crescendo. But it's very much about friendship for me. It's about how love can supplant friendship. But it's also very deeply a novel about what it means to be black uh, in Britain today. And what really struck me about it was we talk about the musical references, but it's actually written much like a song. There are ideas that are separated by commas and it reminds me of just the cadence and the rhythm of of the words and how they dance on the page. It's very much like a song. I'd also describe it uh, as an elegy because the way Caleb kind of casts the reader as the, the central character is at first slightly jarring. It's a technique, a literary technique I haven't come across used in quite this way. I feel like I am him. 
And I don't know about, about you, Kate, when you read it, whether you felt like you were having all these feelings because he, there's a form of address that he uses. He refers to the reader as you. That is him as well. So you're experiencing everything in the same, in the same intensity of emotion and feeling everything as he does. And we should explain how that works because it is quite a curious technique. So it's written in the second person and it's a sort of slippery you, as you say, because the you is um, can be you, the reader. It can be you, the narrator. It could even be the, the woman who he's addressing. And mm. I'm just going to open the page. So the first night you met a night you both negate as too brief an encounter, you pull your friend Samuel to the side. There's a bunch of you in the basement. And so it's a sort of risky decision, I think, to write a novel in the second person, which is something I usually don't like. (laughs) But I think that he's pulled it off. Oh, yeah. Who's the you for you? (laughs) Well, the you is me. Um, Like I I said, uh, his descriptions of of being black in Britain today... um, resonate with me as a black man in Australia in that kind of idea of kind of global blackness and a sense of all the things he describes of of this kind of fragile state of being heavy and scared and of being always subject to kind of this um, the su- surveillance of others is something that kind of will, will strike a chord with many black people here in Australia. Um, but I do think that technique does work in this novel. It, it took me a while to adjust, but it does. It, it by the end, I I felt we he and I were indivisible, and that's saying something. It really is. But I was so curious about the decision that he'd made to do this. So when I spoke to him recently, I actually asked him why he decided to write in the second person. Now this is what he said. When I started writing, there was this, the second person was a very immediate thing. It kind of, it it was the first sentence and I was like, okay, here we go. There was something about the like intentionality of it. Yeah, I wanted to have this intimate experience where the reader could be both an audience, kind of someone, someone observing, but could also be the protagonist, could also be like as close to the narrative as possible. And I think the the second person does that without it being too claustrophobic. It kind of, it just inserts you right there, right as close to the action as possible. Although at times that can make for an experience that's like very visceral, like it's very feeling led. I think so much of what I was writing was like starting at the point of emotion and then trying to, trying to work language to, towards that emotion. And this is, an extraordinarily emotional novel and that form of address takes us into it in, I think, really interesting ways. I mean, that's a, he's given us a really great explanation. I'm, I'm quite a fan of second person. I don't know why, but I, I do like exactly what Daniel was saying, you know, taking you there. It is a conceptual leap, but I also like it because of, of the, the race themes, you know, that's a and a new way of using language I hadn't even thought of. It's, that's fantastic. But it's the emotional stuff that's really quite fascinating that he's talking about. Well, and particularly because we're getting inside the emotions of this young black man in London whose grandmother in Ghana has recently died. He's thinking a lot about his family. He's, as Daniel said, it's also about friendship and he's discovering his feelings for this woman. But then there's also just the emotions of being looked at. He's a tall, big man who has to be careful even about what it means to walk down the street and have your hoodie on because of the way that you judge. Now, here's an example that really hit me. Um, This is a description. He's had quite a good night. He's in a good mood. He's going to a friend's house. He says, you're thinking of an evening with a glass of wine, a record spinning in the background. You're thinking of good food and better company. You're in a memory of something yet to happen when they stop you, like a moving vehicle edged off the road. They tell you there's been a spate of robberies in the area. They say many residents describe a man fitting your description. They ask where you are going and where you have come from. They say you appeared out of nowhere like magic almost. They don't hear your protests. They don't hear your voice. 
They don't hear you. They don't see you. Daniel, how did you respond to sections like that? Oh, very powerfully. Um, it reminds me of a moment, actually, I was in London. I was visiting the August Strindberg exhibition at the Tate Modern and I was, you know, not placed under arrest. Well, I was denied my freedom, so I guess I was arrested by a very large group of, uh, of policemen. And I was, had been walking with my partner and we'd had a bit of a disagreement, so we were walking separately. And um, all of a sudden, I was just swarmed by all these cops and some on motorbikes. And basically they pinned me against the wall of the Tate Modern. People were looking, eating their lunch and looking out at me. Um, and I just remember this, it took you know, 15 minutes to resolve the fact that I was an Australian citizen visiting this country, going to an exhibition, the August Strindberg exhibition at the Tate Modern, for heaven's sake. Mm, God. Um, but a person matching my description had been involved in a, in a, in a robbery, a person on a motorbike. I said, I don't own a motorbike. I'm visiting this country from Australia. I, I didn't have my passport on me. I didn't think I'd need it. I was on a day trip to London. And that's not the, the only time that's happened. Um, and I'm not even, you know, as, as visibly black as, as some people. So I'm shaking as I'm, I'm relating this story. I'm shaking yeah, as I, it, I'm thinking you? about it because it, uh, it's, a, it's an experience that I think through the novel... If you haven't experienced it, you may perceive what it is like to be uh, under threat, under surveillance, to be in open water, to be, you know, to all intents and purposes, a free person in a free society, and yet you don't have freedom like others experience it. So it's, a very, it's very powerfully related and it's very much... Um, the thing that, that drove me through this book, it's a very slender volume, but it drove me through and it, it just sings. It really does sing. It resonates to me. And also it's written to make it clear that this is also an everyday experience for men like him who are negotiating the city in so many different ways. So he's doing it, being aware of being looked at. He's thinking about art. He's thinking about photography. He's thinking about stories of the street. He's thinking about friends. And all of these things are tied together in, I think, quite a, a delicate way because it also is, an, I mean, as awful as your story is, Daniel, I think it's significant that you were going to an exhibition because the characters in this novel are also defining their city by art. Mm. That's why I, I made reference to that story because these are incredibly creative people who aren't seen for who they are. They're seen for what they are. And even the way Caleb relates this, the, the, well, the, the character, the protagonist, the way he talks about these experiences of, of hypervigilance and of surveillance, uh, how he speaks about those, he experiences them almost, you know, in a solitary way, even though there are other black men who he knows experience the same thing. He describes moments on trains where, you know, you exchange knowing glances with a brother, you know, and these moments of, um, of union between black men. And... But the thing is he can't, the, the protagonist can't break this story, this kind of trauma and this ongoing pain. He can't relate it to the black woman in his life. And so that's why I think in many ways this novel is also an elegy. Everything is remembered. Everything is a memory. And they're, they're kind of thin sometimes. These memories are hazy. And I love that about this novel. It's an elegy to love. And you get the feeling that maybe this love is lost before you reach the end of the novel. I think in the first few pages, you get a sense that you're, you're going to be mourning something at the end. Daniel, I want to go back to something that you said early on, which is the way that this book relates to music and sound and repetition. And there are two big ideas that he comes at again and again. One is the idea of open water and what it means to move out into open water. And it means about five different things in this book. And the other one is looking and seeing. And so I was really curious about that repetition. And I asked him about that too. The idea of repetition 
in itself was something that I there's something very intentional because I think I was really interested in this idea of what happens in music when things loop round continuously like in hip-hop where there's like a four beats and then the same beat four beats come round again and again and how each time despite the music being the same there's a different feeling like you never the moment has passed so you never experience the same moment again and so I was really interested in what would happen if I was employing this idea of looping and this idea of repetition and I think with those specific phrases it just served as emphasis but it also meant that at each juncture it meant something different. Did it mean something different for you as you came across these ideas these loops in his writing? Yes. I mean, obviously you're looking at it in context, but I, I came back to this idea of this being like a very long song, a, a, a love song in, so, in some ways. Um, and like I said, this, this melody, there is, a, there is not just a soundtrack, there is a melody, there's a cadence, there's a rhythm, and the whole novel is a song. But the, the, one of the other ideas I think that he articulates, there are a couple beyond those that you've mentioned, this idea of being looked at and, and being seen. But there's another one that he comes back to, and it's, it's the, these words, to be you is to apologise. And often that apology comes in the form of suppression, and that suppression is indiscriminate. So he's talking about this not being able to be yourself, not being always suppressing you, you know, those parts of you that you, you don't want to be exposed, you don't want to be vulnerable, you don't want to be in open water. So he's talking about the black man always suppressing his identity, always suppressing, you know, that raucous laugh or that sudden movement. So that kind of um, idea that the body is, is, the black body is always a container of a vessel for, for the fears of others very powerfully articulated by these uh, recurring um, ideas. It's so powerful. I initially, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm not persuaded, but I came around to it so, so much. Um, and it, it's, it's, it is a beautiful song. It is a beautiful song. And he's 26 and this is his first novel. It's incredible. I mean... Uh, you know, just read the some of the reviews on the back, some of the some of the endorsements from other black writers about, you know, Caleb Zimmer Nelson representing the future of black writing in Britain and probably black writing more generally. Um, it, it's just stunning to me that that someone so young could, you know, employ all these tricky devices and do them so convincingly. There's something to be said about this man, and I can't actually wait to see or hear or read the next one because this is a startling debut. Caleb Azuma Nelson's Open Water is published by Viking and it was read for us by RN broadcaster Daniel Browning, long-time host of Away and now presenter of The Art Show. Now on the bookshelf here on RN, let's turn to a novel that moves between India and England while circling family stories and secrets. It's by the English writer Sunjeev Sahota, whose books include Hours of the Streets and The Year of the Runaways, and his latest, the one we're concentrating on now, is called China Room. It was read for us by writer and poet Rashida Murphy, whose novel is The Historian's Daughter. And China Room begins in 1929 in India with a 15-year-old young woman named Maha. She's recently married, but she doesn't know who her husband is or what he looks like. So how, I asked Rashida, how is this even possible? This is not impossible, Kate. Uh, the India that uh, my grandparents lived in, such a thing would be entirely plausible. You know, this is rural Punjab where girls are hidden away, seen, not heard. 
married really early. My own grandmother was married at 15 and she was a mother at 16. So these things are quite possible. So, you know, there are all these things that growing up in a place like India, we consider normal and acceptable. But uh, for me, uh, he just drew me in with the portrait of, you know, the young girl being disobedient. It starts with she was not so obedient, a 15-year-old, that she won't try to uncover which of the three brothers is her husband. I mean, what a fabulous opening line. Uh, we already, there's so much happening there. We know she's one of three brides. We know there are three brothers. We know that these are young women who have been married off to these men and that um, it's going to be... Um, interesting to discover, to walk with them on that journey and find out, you know, what this disobedient teenager is about to do next. But unlike perhaps your grandmother who had never met her husband before she married him, Maha doesn't know who her husband is even after she's married him. Because they're secluded, they don't look upon the face of the the men they've married during the day, and even at night when they're sent off to be with the husband, they're yep. not supposed to look him in the eye. So these three young women, they're yeah. desperate to work out which brother they're married to, aren't they? Yeah, and, you know, all of that, uh, there's such uh, claustrophobia in that seclusion, you know, shut away, hidden away, dark. It's just fantastic world building, I think. And I was completely drawn into those those lives, that story. And the, the commentary, you know, particularly later when the, the young man, the great-grandson of this woman, visits the farm and, you know, all of that. That is so beautifully done, I thought. Well, like you, Sunjeev Sahota is drawing on a, a family story, a, a family legend in a way that he wanted to revisit and unpack. So, so here he is explaining both the story but also the place in which it occurs. Yeah, so the China Room is it's a place on a farm in Punjab in northwestern India and it's, it's a farm I know well. It's a farm that belongs to... My family has been in my family's life for generations. And it's a room that's always held a great deal of mystery. There was always a story going back in my family about a great-grandmother who was one of four brides married to four brothers and how none knew which husband was theirs until they saw who was holding which baby a year later because the women had to be veiled all the time when they were kept sequestered from men. And so the story goes. How this story has been embellished over the decades, you know, Lord knows. But the women had to stay in this room, which I've called the China Room. As I said, it's a room that still exists on the farm. It's now used as a grain store. And it's always, as far as I can remember, had bars on the window. Controlled, contained. But as you say, Rashida, this young woman was disobedient. She's lively. She has a great energy about her. So you could see, you could understand the lives of these three young women you'd drawn into the story? Yes, yes, I, I could. It was, um, it was amazing, uh, particularly that, you know, Sanjeev Sohota, who grew up in the UK and, you know, in Sheffield, the working class um, suburb where immigrants would have earlier on sort of moved to because of uh, work opportunities and so on. And I was really, really interested in how well he entered the lives of the women, particularly because the other book that I read of his, The Year of the Runaways, is a much more sprawling saga, a much angrier book, I thought, whereas this one appears to be uh, more meditative, more gentle, I found the women completely and utterly believable. They were of their time and they were also 
beautiful in the way they adapt to the constraints of their lives. You know, there's such immense sadness. One of the women, for example, I think it's Gurleen who says uh, her sister or her brother is getting married at some stage. And today is her brother's wedding and she's unable to go. There's all these nuances and there's all this gentleness in the handling of a really sad story. The, the women and their powerlessness is depicted with such tenderness and gentleness that it was amazing. And as you say, there is a counterpoint to the story. There is another story that takes place mostly in 1999 with a young man, he's 18 years old, he's nameless. He leaves the UK and comes to visit India. What drives him? What is he battling with? Well, he comes, uh, he's a recovering junkie, isn't he? He's desperate. Uh, he's grown up in the UK. Uh, he's faced racism. Uh, he has started using su- and abusing substances from a fairly young age. And here he is at 18, attempting a sort of a rehabilitation, deeply ashamed of what he's done to his hardworking immigrant parents. But also there's a deep anger in him that they subjected him to that. And I find it interesting that Sanjeev in one of his interviews has mentioned uh, this point about growing up as an Indian in the UK. And he says, I hope my children's relationship with this country will be less painful than mine. And I find that interesting. I relate to that as an immigrant myself. I know that I wanted my children's relationship with this country to be different from mine. And definitely I wanted it for them, for my daughters, for my son. I wanted that they should have a less painful time of it than I did. So all that adjusting that you do as a young immigrant, particularly as a young brown immigrant, he captures that very well in his, uh, you know, as the 18-year-old who travels from the UK to a rural farm in Punjab to try and uh, get over. I mean, he's detoxing basically on the farm, uh, which is uh, what happens after. Rashida, what about the politics of the story? Because in the 19... 19- Well, in the 1999 strand, as you say, we get the sort of politics of racism and immigration being worked through. But in 1929, India is changing and political movements are rumbling outside the gates of the farm. How well does he handle that, would you say? I thought he did that very skillfully and cleverly because uh, that whole uh, India was still under British dominion at the time. But the rumblings, you know, the first war of Indian independence had already happened in 1857. And the British insist on calling it the Sepoy Mutiny, which, of course, is ludicrous because it was more than a mutiny. Um, so by 1929, the you know Quit India movement uh, is beginning. There's um, divisions. There's divisions between class and religions as well as races. So it could be a minefield if you try to portray it all. And. I'm really glad that in this particular story, uh, Sohota doesn't attempt to do that. So there's the, the merest hint. It's done lightly, which I found really appealing as well. But just to go back to the very beginning of this discussion, this is a novel that plays with or is uh, leaps off from a real family story. And there are big ethical questions, I think, about what it means to write a story like this. So this question of who is actually, who has the right to tell the story? And it's something I wrestled with a lot when I was starting to write my story. Like what right does anyone have to tell the story of someone else who was alive and who lived, you know, to kind of like give them voice and give them, put words into their mouth that they may not have thought and put thoughts into their heads. But then I ended up thinking, actually, who else is going? If if not me, who else is going to give 
any kind of voice to this story of my, this potential story of my great grandmother. And I stopped seeing it as an imposition and, and this book being more as like an act of love or a gift from me to her in a way. And once I got my head around that, then the story flowed much more easily, but the question of authorship kind of remained and I wanted it to be, I wanted a sense of openness at the end. Actually, we don't know. You can never know what really happened, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't try to tell the story and try to understand what could have happened and how it might have felt for this young girl. Because she would have been, there wouldn't have been any more than 16 years old when they got married. It bears thinking and writing about and reading about, I think. And so I'm wondering, Rashida, what... I mean, because you're an, you're a novelist as well. What it means to take somebody else's story and play with it? Oh, look! Uh, I loved that he said uh, uh, that he considered it an act of love. What right do I have? But then, if not me, then who else? Because I had huge problems when I was writing The Historian's Daughter and the the image. I don't know if you've read it, but uh, there's the image of the mad aunt locked in the attic. And that was my family myth. My elders who always said, oh, we locked up the mad auntie in the attic. To this day, I don't know if anyone was really locked up and, you know, what was her sin? Because there were so many versions of why she had been locked up. And I took that image and I wrote about it. And I thought, I wonder if this will offend. But, you know, this was a long time ago. And the mad auntie is obviously no longer there, nor are any other elders who would have told me about this. Yeah, whose story, who tells it? These these are things we grapple with constantly. And I don't think there is any one simple answer to it. Sunjeev Sahota's China Room is published by Harvel Secker. And yes, it was one of my highlights of last year's reading. And it was read for us by Rashida Murphy. Finally on the bookshelf here on Radio National, How Australia Writes and Imagines Itself with Aravinda Diga. Adiga is an Indian and Australian writer whose books include the Booker Prize-winning The White Tiger and the eviscerating and wonderful Amnesty, set across one day in Sydney. Now, as part of a much longer conversation I had with Aravind about writing and reading about the bookshelf that shaped him, I commented that in his novel Amnesty, there are two characters who are gamblers – and in describing them, noted that there's a reference to Peter Carey's Oscar and Lucinda. Here's part of his response. So this is how I see culture operating in most countries, not just here, that you assume that what people are saying about themselves is actually what they're really anxious about. On this note, you know, Australians like to think of themselves as a lucky country. There's a, um, there's a pervasiveness. There's a, the obviously gambling in some form is just widely available here in a way it is in no other country, not the United States, not India. It's something Australians take for granted that you can go into any pub and find a whole range of pokey machines and people playing. And, and, the, and the damage this has done to people is just is well documented. It's no secret. And yet it's something that no one really uh, is making any real effort to regulate in this country. So when people here ask about the American Second Amendment and how Americans tolerate guns, you know, Americans could equally ask how you tolerate gambling. Now, the two are not equivalent in that guns are much worse. But gang gambling in this country has done so much damage to people. But it, it strikes me as profoundly troubling, especially because a lot of the people I see gambling are increasingly just women on their own or, or immigrants, uh, and a lot of South Asians doing it too. Uh, and this idea of the, 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 the lucky country, the country that where gambling is almost a right. Some years ago when there was a serious attempt in New South Wales to regulate uh, gambling in pubs, the pub owners presumably took out a series of advertisements saying that regulating gaming, regulating, regulating uh, pokies is un-Australian. I was struck by that because there's nothing more American than uh, that. the first time I'd heard that phrase un-Australian because I'd only seen un-American before. It was such a blatant attempt to play on people's uh, notions of themselves, and it worked. That regulatory attempt failed. This is just something that's appalling that happens in open, plain daylight in Australia. It's increasingly what immigrants are being drawn into many 
Uh, people from China and India are obsessive gamblers, which you would have noticed if you had gone to Macau, that this is masked over by a series of cultural tropes celebrating gambling on, on Anzac Day or in novels like Oscar and Lucinda. Now, now that's a great novel, and Peter Carey is a very great writer. One of the things I don't, I don't much like about his work is that he, uh, it seems to me he, he's, he's, he's incredibly gifted with language, but he'll take an idea that Australians have about themselves and will just sort of present that idea uh, without examining it very critically. In one of his more recent novels, there's something about an Australian who leads an, who's, who's an anti-American protester of some kind. Uh, and again, he's taking something people say about themselves and exploring that rather than, and examining it rather than exploring it. I've never liked that aspect of, of as I said, gambling is something that just really disturbs me because I'm a person myself with serious addictive tendencies and I thankfully don't gamble, but I could easily see myself in a different world spending my entire day and all my money in, in a place like that. And the fact that this happens just openly and it's, it's talked about, yeah, but not in any real way in which people want to change it. And it's now so essential to the state economy of New South Wales or Victoria and, and generally the Australian economy is just something, again, that um, has just always troubled me. And uh, that's part of why it, it sort of is in the book. Can I ask you, you mentioned um, Peter Carey, you mentioned Christos Chalkers. Are there other works of Australian fiction that you do admire? Um, well, yeah, if you go, a recent work that I thought was tremendous was, uh, it's a work of nonfiction, it's Helen Garner's um, book, I think it was called This House of Death, uh, which came out a couple of years ago. It was a real-life examination. It was an examination of a real murder story um, that took place in, uh, I think, in Victoria a few years ago. And, um, you know, the critic Harold Bloom said there were three criteria by which you, you gauge a work of art, a work of fiction. One was cognitive originality. Um, the second was what he called aesthetic majesty. And the third was an answerable style. Uh, so the first is He's asking, is someone in a, in a work of art coming up with a completely new way to see the world? Uh, and in, in Helen Garner's work, sometimes in, in this book, for instance, she examines the mind of this man in a completely new way. What might have gone through the, the, the thoughts of a, of a father who was preparing to kill his own children? Uh, and, and she doesn't come up with any of the obvious answers. Her, her, her analysis of his thinking was just, I think, completely original. Uh, the second criteria is, 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 is aesthetic majesty, uh, which is style, language, and she has that, and, and, and as does you know, Peter Carey, as do many Australian writers. And the third, the third category, answerable style, I've never quite understood that. I think Harold Bloom means if you ask a writer, why did you put that sentence in, he or she has to be able to defend it, not just say, I put it in because I felt like. And, and Helen Garner you know, takes all three of those in that book. Um, the, but the Australian book I think I admire more than any other is, uh, is Ray Lawler's Summer of the Seventeenth Doll. Uh, it seems like the, the quintessential uh, Australian work to me. And um, uh, one of the things I did in the course of writing Amnesty was to travel around Australia, especially to regional Australia, um, where I discovered, you know, so much of the work is done not by the people Australians think are doing the work, not by, by white Australians, so much of the work in regional Australia and picking fruit, um, intending to fields in winter before they're harvested is all done by by illegal migrants from a lot of whom have come from Malaysia. Uh, and I was really struck by the parallels between rail haulers, cane cutters, um, who sort of work, uh, who work hard and then sort of play hard uh, until they're too old to do it. Uh, and a very similar thing that is happening right now, except it's Malaysians who come here <laughs> and work hard three months of the year and then, you know, sort of play hard and go home. Uh, and do it year after year until they become too old to do it. I was struck by how exactly uh, similar their experiences were to some of those described in Summer of the Seventeen Doll, except that they are, are not uh, sort of the white men uh, described in Ray Lawler's book. Uh, and, and on this front, I did want to say that uh, uh, when you go to regional Australia, there's a, there's, a, there's a species of statuary, which is well known, the big, the big trout sort of species of Australiana, you know, you go to the big pineapple, whatever. There's a second category of statuary you see, which is the apotheosis of labor statuary, the, the, uh, the, 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 the group of, of men cutting cane, the group of men sort of harvesting wheat, which these, these sort of statues are in stucco, sometimes in stone, put up in the 1930s and 40s, celebrating, you know, the, uh, the taming of the Australian continent, celebrating the hard labor that went into making Australia. And, and wherever you go in Australia now, if you look at these statues right next to them, there'll be fields 
And the people working the fields look nothing like the men in the statues uh, because the people working the fields, unless the backpackers are all typically illegal migrants from Malaysia or from other countries. I was very struck by that, a country whose statues no longer reflect the, the physical reality of work. And uh, I, I, you know, I just imagine when a white Australian looks at these statues and then looks at the men actually doing the work, the men who are now harvesting wheat and cutting cane uh, must be telling him, uh, uh, must be saying in his mind, you know, uh, I am the man your fathers were. That's a line from T.S. Eliot. It just, it just rang in my mind as I was traveling in Australia. This, that's what the illegal migrant must be telling the white Australian. I am the man your fathers were. Um, and, and that must be why so many people in this country just don't want to acknowledge the, the fact that so many people here now live this twilight, ambiguous existence, um, because there has to be a will to blindness. There has to be a sort of Nietzschean impulse not to see, because it would just upset so many of your cherished ideas of who you are and, and why you're well off. Uh, and and this, this idea was in my mind, this line was in my mind as I was writing the book, I am the man your fathers were which is what a lot of the, the, the people here in that twilight life, in that twilight zone of Australia are actually telling us. And you've written such a, a complex novel of this twilight life and you've done a whole lot of remapping in it, I think. And I've probably only got time for one more question, which is to ask you, Aravind, I believe this novel, Amnesty, is being developed for a TV series. Is that something that you can tell us about? I, it's been optioned for a film. A uh, film. A film, yeah. And, and, you know, many, many things are optioned and very few of them get done completely. So the chance of failure is much higher than of success. Uh, but... But yeah, it's it's uh, my my friend Ramin Barani who made the White Tiger and to whom the White Tiger is dedicated. Uh, he he had read it uh, uh, many years ago, um, and 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 in fact, when I was in Sri Lanka, part of the reason I wrote this was I was also spending a lot of time in Sri Lanka as as a foreign correspondent in India. Uh, but fifteen years ago, I began going to Sri Lanka and I spent a lot of time there. And in the course of my travels, I went to a city. Uh, called Batikaloa in the east of Sri Lanka, which has this extraordinary lagoon, an unforgettable lagoon. Now, in addition to not being able to drive, I've never learned to swim, which means I can't actually do, you know, swim in the lagoon. What I do is go around it. Uh, I was going around listening to all the stories people were telling me about it, in the course of which I heard of a man who had lived near that lagoon, a Sri Lankan Tamil man who had been working in Dubai, who on his return to Sri Lanka one day had been interrogated quite brutally, tortured by the um, the security officials because they thought he was a terrorist returning from Dubai because he had the same name as the terrorist who then came back to Batikloa and told people goodbye that he was leaving, he was getting out of this country even though the local Tamils told him not to leave because that's what the government wanted to force the ethnic composition of Sri Lanka to change they asked him to stay but he had had enough and they never heard from him they assumed that like many others he had somehow perished on this precarious uh, trip out of Sri Lanka but finally they got a postcard from him uh, from another ocean, from from Sydney, and that the presence, the juxtaposition of these images, the the sort of you know tranquil ocean of Sydney against the 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 sort of uh, more ambiguous Conradian uh, water of the Batikaloa Lagoon is how uh, this novel also began in my mind. And I, and I mentioned this when I was in Sri Lanka to my friend Ramian, who said that 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 sounded. Um, that sounded powerfully like the, right, the start of a novel and he encouraged me to keep at it and that's part of the reason why this book, this book was, was formed. Uh, but again, you, know, you never know with, with films whether or not they will happen. And, and, and it's funny, when, when I saw Stan Grant a year ago, what I wanted to tell him, because I just read his book, I think it's called Talking About My Country, I wanted to tell him what people in Hollywood told me, which made me laugh. Is I actually read the whole book, Stan, which is something people in Hollywood said, which always cracked me up, because that's the highest compliment they can give you. I actually read your whole book. <laughs> <laughs> All the way to the end. Well, look, I actually read your whole book, and I promise I read it twice. Aravinda Diga, thank you so much for speaking to us. Oh, thank you very much for having me on. Aravinda Diga, Reading Australia. His books include The White Tiger, Selection Day and his latest, Amnesty, which is published by Picador. I'm Kate Evans. Cassie McCullough and I will be back next week to begin a whole new year of reading. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.